Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of My Independence Report, and I want you to go and grab anybody that you know and sit them down in front of the YouTube machine that's right here, because I have an extraordinary guest for this hour, and I would love love to share it with you and the world, which we will over time, but if you've got somebody that is around that you can talk to and you can sit down now please do that because Kira Johnson is our guest today and uh, she is a dynamic individual. First of all, Hey there, how you doing? Hi, Kevin. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. You, are are, you? I'm great. Thank you very much. You are a busy, busy, busy girl. You think so? <laughs> I, I, I was reading your, uh, um, not your resume, but your, your synopsis. And it's like, man she's busy she's she does a lot of good things and the really cool thing is you're doing some great things for the african-american community and for the community at large and you're talking to people about the subject that's near and dear to my my heart because i've lost a couple of people due to it and that's aside and uh and stuff so let's let's work on telling your story shall we well, great. Um, I always say that whenever I have to uh, say this story or talk about it, that sometimes the things that we go through, our tragedies and our passions, are the very same things that will end up building us and that will make us great at some point, depending on how we use it. And so um, I guess I can kind of go back a little bit, uh, letting you know that I'm originally from the city of East St. Louis, Illinois. Uh, very proud to say that, the city of champions. Uh, in addition to that, I grew up in this city and it was absolutely phenomenal to me. Um, I grew up uh, initially in a two-person home, mother, father, uh, my grandmother, uh, who was a retired teacher. I had a younger brother. I think the only thing that was probably missing was the dog. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> but we, we had each other. And uh, I think that we stayed in a household that really participated in educational values. That was something that uh, our family took something very strong to, uh, especially my father. He was, uh, my stepfather was the African-American studies professor uh, who taught at the uh, Southern Community College in our local community. And uh, he was also a member of the fraternity uh, Phi Beta Sigma, and my mother, uh, his wife, a uh, lovely lady, I like to say, uh, they met, I would believe, a little bit before she was in college or during the time she was in um, uh, junior college. And she, too, would study. Uh, she would get her bachelor's degree in biology and chemistry, which is a little bit beyond me. I, that's, that's not my area of expertise, uh, but it was hers. And uh, because of that, she really pushed forward to joining a sorority herself, uh, the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, 
And both of them together had great initiatives and ambitions to work in the community and just take strong uh, stronghold on some of the things that we commonly push for today. And at 26 and at 29, I think that they were so young, so beautiful and had so much to, you know, going for themselves. But I think that just as we think that things are getting great, things can also come as fast. You know, if we, you know, look at COVID, you know, things like that, like you never know what the world or what the day might be like the next day. And I think with them, especially my uh, stepfather, he was going through a lot of issues at the time. Um, he had some issues with his thyroid. A lot of the professors at the local community colleges, they were laid off. And uh, he was one of those professors that was laid off. My mother continued to work uh, and she continued to help, you know, produce the atmosphere of a loving family household. But I think that the, the facade of it kind of got old and um, the truth really did start to come out. And it specifically came out on December 21st of 1998. And that day or that night would be the night that I lost both of my parents to a homicide suicide. And this took place uh, in our home. This I always think about it and say, you know, it's the first day of winter and four days before Christmas. So it's, it's always an iffy time of the year for me. Um, but I think about that time and it's hard because it's never going to be easy to say my mother was shot seven times or my father killed himself and he shot himself four times. It, it was something that startled us all. We would have never seen it coming with their prerequisites and all the things that they had going for themselves, you would assume that um, they would have been able to push beyond those things. Uh, whatever the issues were with counseling, uh, therapy, they're very important. And I'm not sure if they took those avenues at the time I was eight years old and I had a five-year-old brother and uh, my grandmother was there as well as my great grandmother was there. And uh, we all witnessed it. It was something that really affected our house and it affected our community. Um, and so that's that's more of it. The gist. So not only did you, uh, you so you actually witnessed the, the suicide murder. Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, what kind of work have you done in your life? Because that for an eight year old, that's well, it doesn't matter your age. That's a horrific thing. To, to have to witness? Um, at the time, it was critical. Uh, the courts mandated for us to do family counseling. And so that's something that we were able to do through through for a little bit of time. I won't say how effective it was at that time because you kind of have to, what you take from therapy, you kind of have to use those things in everyday life, you know? And I don't think that those things are really implemented. So I'm not sure how well uh, but there were a lot of other things there are a lot of other avenues that were really able to help me channel uh, my inner thoughts, feelings, and aggressions about what had happened. You know, a lot of people would give up when would say, and would say, I'm, 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 I hate the world. I hate life. But when you got on the phone or got on the uh, screen today, you had the most beautiful smile on your face, which, okay. is, which you do all the time. Um, and, to face that and to go through that and then to do what you're doing now. First thing that I want to tell you is I think your dad is very sorry 
and um, your mom and dad are both looking down at you in wonderment and amazement at what you've become. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. It really is. It You are an, an inspiration to almost everyone because we all, we all have issues in our life. Mm-hmm. Not many of us have that one. But you know, the, the thing about it is that growing up, especially in the community that I was in, so many other people, so many other children have similar stories. And I was in a place where I didn't have room to or be able to sympathize or take pity on myself for the issue that happened in my life because it would be like, you know, you know, talking to the same person about the same thing. We're all going through things where we all have things that uh, that have traumatized us because we come from an impoverished neighborhood. We have a lack of resources. You know, we do have an all African-American city for the most part. So we've experienced a lot of things. And so being able to get past it, I think it initially came from a point of not being able to have that pity in a way because we were all dealing with a lot of trauma. So what was it and when was it that you decided that you were going to give back and that you were going to help your community heal from, because we've all got trauma, but help your community heal and move past it and then start writing and start doing all the things that you're doing and, and speaking out and, and talking about uh, uh, suicide and, and that sort of thing. When, when was that? Was there a moment in time when you said, yep, that's what I'm going to go do. You know what? I will say I initially started <clears throat> uh, my grandmother, God bless her whole heart. She is an amazing soul. Um, she continued to raise me. This is my stepfather's uh, mother who we ended up living with. She continued to raise us. And I, oh my goodness, I was not the best, but she still found a way through our pastor, through a mission society called Acts 18 Mission Society. And through there, we would actually leave our community to go to other communities and volunteer work through uh, uh, the Lutheran church and different things like that. So we would stay overnight and we would stay in these really, really bad areas. And I'm talking like, I would be like, yeah, we, I mean, we were sleeping on pews. We had to like, you know, wash up in sinks. Like it was that kind of thing. But we were there to meet and be a part of the community and understand them. So I went off to college. I get to the University of South Alabama. Here I am. I wanted to watch the news to just get the gist of everything that's going on back home. And I see that a young man uh, that I uh, lived next door to, uh, it looked as though that was his name that I saw. I didn't want to admit that that was probably his name. So what I did was I went to Facebook and I saw like, rest in peace, like rest in peace, rest in peace. And I was just like, I don't get it. You know, I, I really, really don't understand why these things continue to happen in our community. Specifically this young kid, I mean, would play on my porch as a kid. I would eat, you know, drink Capri Suns, you know, from my backyard, you know, out of my backyard, like that kind of thing. We were kids and he had recently got incarcerated after he was released. He had talked to a friend of mine and he was like, you know, he's talking about getting his life together. He's going to go. He has a daughter on the way. He's going to move with his father and work in construction, that kind of deal. And I was excited because the first thing in my mind is like the system works. Like, you know, he's going to go and do the right thing. And sure enough, as he's walking to the store, he uh there's a drive-by shooting and he's dead 
And his life literally stopped right there. And after the rest in peace, like, you know, comments were over. To me, I, I couldn't understand why it kept happening to my city, why it kept happening to the young men where I was from, what was going on, what was it in the minds of the people and the children and the adults, what were they facing? What were the variables that contributed to this behavior? And I wanted to understand more. And that meant going out into the community and listening to other people's stories. Um, I started off actually working and uh, with campaigning uh, with uh, the county councils of uh, Jefferson County here in Missouri and just other places just to understand how do I get, get into this? How do I start to understand how this all works? And I heard a guy, he was a speaker at my honor society, and he said, whatever your passion is, it's what keeps you up at night. And at that time, I was a communication special, I mean, a communications major. And I was like, it's going to take me forever to get a good story as a journalist. <laughs> and I kept thinking, like, this is what's keeping me up. Like, why did my parents die? Like, what happened in that situation? Why is it that when the officers walked in that night, they didn't frown, they didn't cry. It was just protocol. Like, what is the terror that continues to terrorize our community? What is the mindset? And that's what kept me up is wanting to understand and wanting to resolve the issue. And so I'm here today because I'm here to try to resolve an issue that I've seen for years in my life. And I'm just ready for it to be over. It's hard to know what to even say when, when we're talking about such a horrific waste of life. Um, there are, you know, what did you find out? What have you discovered over time? that it has been systemic, that it's painful to realize that because I grew up in an all African-American community. The schools where I live at, the schools are named after African-Americans, like Wabeta Young or, you know, uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, like these are the names of our schools. And so I grew up thinking like, this is, you know, everybody's like this. You know, everybody's like, you know, just as calm and nice and what goes on just goes on. And it wasn't until I went to college and I was around all these international students. I cooked some food one day, found out that soul food was completely different across the, like, you know, <laughs> no, everybody wasn't eating it. And I found my culture and uh, I jogged me in here a little bit. Jogmin, what were you saying? I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, just what what was it that uh, that motivated you? That uh, let's see, where was I? <laughs> I know. I was like, I was totally with it. I was, I, I had it good. Yeah. No, you were doing you were doing um, fabulously well. I I guess I guess what I what happened to you, and I see it on the streets. I before I did this, I was a bus driver for a long time, and. I see a lot of hopelessness. I see a lot of people that are not, that are not, they don't feel empowered. They don't mm -hmm. feel like they can do anything. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're, they're, they're stuck and they can't, and they can't move. And that's a, when a whole culture becomes that way and everybody feels like, you know, there were, there were people that would come to me and say, 
that would get on the bus and they'd be talking to somebody else. And yeah, oh, yeah, Fred got or 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 Nathaniel got uh, uh, shot and killed. It's like, oh, well, that, that it's like we have to stop this. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I, that's why I'm so happy that you're you're on my podcast because people like you and I can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's where I was going is how old were you? And when did you decide that, that Kiara Johnson, that, that, that cute kid over here who was eight years old when her parents died and friends died in the prime, you decided that you could make a difference. Right. And- uh, right. Right. So it was beyond a passion. Um, and with my pastor as well, it was campaigning. What did I find out? that it was systemic and um, and I found that way because I thought that the world reflected my community. And what I did was I moved to another state and <laughs> well, you wow. know, not everybody enjoys ham hocks and, and, and things like that. That's- they don't, they don't. But uh, so after college, I moved back uh, and I start to work in the judiciary and the judicial system. And while the system, while the work is fine and everything, um, it was very political where I was, the community in which I was. And I was the minority. I was the only African-American was where I was at the time. And it was culture shock. I can what I realized is that I didn't know when people were being racist towards me. I didn't know if people had like when people were showing prejudices toward me because I wasn't used to it. I had never been accustomed to it. You know, when I was in college, I hung out with international kids. And so we were all just kind of in that same boat, you know, in, in, in sort of a way. And when I realized what was happening to me, it was like this level of stress that I felt. And I was praying, I was literally praying like, okay, get me out, get me out, get me out. Because they weren't telling me like, hey, you're a black girl and we don't like you. It was like, oh, we're gonna keep calling you into meetings or we're going to uh, extend, you. we're not gonna extend your time or you can't take this off or you can't, it was these little things that kept happening. And I kept like, why, why is it happening? Like, I don't get it. And at first it was like, I'm not working hard enough. And at first it was just like, you know, maybe I should come in earlier. Maybe I should do all. And I found overworking myself to just do the basics of the job. And when I realized that I kept researching, I got to know more. I got to know more. And I read, I started listening to a lot of the things that my father, uh, he talked about, um, because believe it or not, my dad was a huge civil rights activist, but I wanted to understand. And I found that it was it was all systemic. I found that through working with other people, like people that were recently uh, released from prison, how hard it was for them to just get back into basic society and live. It's impossible that most of the people that are on supervised probation don't really need to be on supervised probation. No, but it's systemic. It, it, it really is. First of all, a couple of things I want to say, you need to come to Seattle. That's, that's where I'm at. And we are considered, I worked for a company out of the Midwest for a period of time and uh, out of Arkansas, there is a completely different mindset in various parts of the country. Mm-hmm. 
we're considered the left coast here because we <laughs> we're a little like bit more, we're a little bit more uh, um, progressive. Um, and so color here doesn't mean what color means in other parts of the country. You grew up in particularly a couple of places that um, uh, one being in uh, in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Which and well, East St. Louis is in Illinois, right? St. Louis is in Missouri. Exactly. Real, and, real funny for a lot of people. <laughs> I know it's like St. Louis, Illinois, St. Louis, but they're the same town. They're just isn't isn't there just a a? Are they it's different? Like, have you ever heard of Kansas City, Kansas? Yes. Kansas City, Missouri. Yep. Same thing, right? Same thing, but two different states, two different cities, just have the same name. Similar name. I want you to come out here because you could you could do some lectures out here that would knock some people's socks off because you understand that people can be racist without even knowing that they're racist. Mm -hmm. People can Mm -hmm. people can do stuff that they don't that that their parents did or their grandparents did the way they talk the way that they they view things how they look at you how they look at promotions how they look at a whole myriad of things that we have got to get over mm-hmm. if we're going to get and you're right it it has been but it's I don't think that it's you know I'm 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 sorry that your 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 dad did what he did but there was underlying causes to that I'm sure mm-hmm. yeah. But, and it was systemic. Yeah. I think that um, it's really what happened to our community was the same thing that happened uh, to a lot of communities. And I, I talk about this in my upcoming book, but it was white flight when, you know, white people literally left communities vacant. And the jobs that we had in our communities. I can remember as a kid, there were some jobs there. We had a Walgreens. I mean, we had a lot of little things that people could do, even a federal building. And 10 years later, after my parents died, everything was just burned down. It was, is, is, I always, I don't really ever want to say it because it's just like, this is my home and I love it. I love the trash. You know what I'm saying? Or, you know, everything that I've come from because it's everything that has made me who I am. But I petition for communities like mine to learn to come together, to finally come together and see past our indifferences of however we feel and realize that the bigger picture is making sure that our community has resources and making sure that our community has a safe place to be in and our children can grow up there. I always want to say I want to raise my kid in the city that I had come from, but with the issues that my city faces, it doesn't re- it doesn't respond to the resources that my son would need that I would want him to have for his future. And that's not okay. No. For me it's not at least, you know. <laughs> No, it's a, and it's not, and it, you know, it shouldn't be okay for any of us. Any of us who live in this country, we've got plenty of resources. We've got the ability to make this a better place for all of us, um, not just not just a select few. Uh, and by the way, if you're listening to this, the date today is April eighth, two thousand twenty-one. There's a trial going on uh, involving a gentleman by the name of George Floyd that uh, has been going on for a week and just just to give a little historical reference uh 
and it is um i can't even watch they 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 show the the tape of of the policeman when they had him on the ground i can't even watch it it is, it is so horrific uh, of how we treat each other it's just and it's yeah. you know so i i um, i spoke it's 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 that's you know because i talked to my little brother today who was just kind of inquiring about what was happening and you know i always say i i look at all of these instances like mike brown freddie gray sandra bland all of these wonderful black beautiful people that are people at the very end of the day when you see something like george floyd and I say that, you know, they're, they're trying to determine, you know, what was the cause or, you know, all of these, like, you know, these, these little loopholes. And I, I told my brother, I said, look at me, if I go and I choke an older lady on the ground, I mean, you know, just choke her and she passes out. The first thing they're going to say, like, we got you on camera. They're not going to ask me as well after she choked her, was it from her choking her? Or was it from, she, you know, asphyxiation? You know what I'm saying? Like, or was that after the fact? And it's like, no, I am now a criminal. And it's like, after I hear, I'm listening to the jury trial. I listen, cause I'm a fan. I work for the judiciary. I do not choose a partisanship. I am a fan of listening to the facts due process. What I don't understand is when the supervisor can say that yes, like I do believe, and I'm you know paraphrasing here, but ultimately that his life could have been saved. He did not have to die. And had he rose his knee up and then later on he stopped breathing after he was no longer at unrest and he stopped breathing later on after that, then we could say like, hey, there's some room in here to determine what has happened. But there was a man's knee on his neck for over eight minutes and he died. But if, if that's a toss up to you, you know, I, I guess, you know, maybe me and you might be the only ones or a few of us others, but that's what I mean. That's what you and I both mean when we talk about systemic. That. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's. And the, the, quite frankly, there have been so many of them and there's so many shootings going on. There was another one today yeah. uh, mm -hmm. where a couple people, there was one yesterday. Yeah. We've had over in, in we as a country need to come together and figure out how that we can coexist with each other and lead our lives in a better way without hurting each other and uh, and hurting all the things the, the, you know the drug addiction all, all of the yes. things that are yes. that are really are and, and you know and and people going to prison and then for for a pot offense and then they're coming out and now they're a convicted felon now they can't get a job. They can't. They they can't vote. They can't mm -hmm. do. And so, what does that do to their psyche? What does that do mm -hmm. to their mental yeah. outlook? Yeah. It's 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 a very it's we as a country we as a, well we as a world need to. Sorry if I'm getting on my soapbox, but no, you're, you're fine. We as a world need to figure out how that we can work together so that people like you and people like me can go to a grocery store and. Once we get our masks off, <laughs> we can right? go to, we can go to a grocery store and, and and smile and say good morning and how are you, mm -hmm. and uh, and if you need something, you yeah. know we need to be there for each other. Yeah, it's um, I think my heart hurts a little bit because I'm a Christian, 
and I I have faith. I believe in God. And it's like at the end all be all, we are people. We are Americans. I think about that. That means I have a dog named America, and it's because she's amazing, right? And, but I truly, truly love this country because despite where we were, we are not in the same place and we're still fighting to change things. But when I look at this country, this America, I say that the only minorities in this country are the people, you know, that if, if you are, you know, I think if you're one race, you may not be American unless you got your citizenship and now you're, you know, you're officially American because we are this mixed breed of a country. Right. And to look at one person and cast them out is wrong, either for, whether for your views or anything. It's people. I come from a time period where in our household, it was okay for people to have an opinion and people to say things and it not be taken out of context, but taken as good criticism, constructive criticism, you know, about some things or, you know, sarcasm. Because maybe I just don't know how to say it right, but maybe you'll catch my drift, you know? And we've come to this place where we're so sensitive. We cannot talk to each other like we used to. We don't socialize like we used to. And it hurts because I love America and I love when we're together and we see past all of the negative things that have haunted our country. We have to be in a forgiving state. I think about something as simple as just changing our values about things. And even at this, I'll say this, I'm not a huge fan of guns. And this is just specifically because of my past, you know, with my father. And so I don't necessarily oppose or I am for legislation. I never make that decision because I'm hoping that, you know, the country together at some point will get something on the ballot that we can all compromise towards. But when I think about it, I said, I was talking to my fiance one day and I look at him and I was like, hey, how many other countries out there uh, just have guns? It's like none, just the US and Mexico. I was like, wait a minute. So we've got all the guns and we're killing each other. I don't think that that's what the plan was. You know, <laughs> I don't think that we should go, you know, but I think like if there was a, a real life invasion or something, which, you know, I'm not saying that hypothetically, all the glamour for that, but we, would, we should be protecting each other, not hurting each other. Right. We're using right. our guns absolutely wrong for us to be one of the only countries that has that has the legal right to own a gun and bear arms in their house. Well, and not only that, they uh, there are countries like Australia. They got rid of all their guns mm-hmm. um, after the uh, there was a mass shooting in New Zealand. Yep. And recently, and they got rid of their guns. England doesn't have guns. France, Germany, all these kind. And what they found is that the people are less likely to shoot each other if they don't have a gun. Yeah, that and makes sense too. There wasn't a whole. Yeah, it wasn't really all that tough to figure out, honestly. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but we, and that's that's why in the tagline, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, the tagline I use is. Um, to, to create freedom from hate, division, and fear. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we have going on in our country right now, I think, is based on hate, division, and mm-hmm. fear. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that are fearful of of the future. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. what, I, what I call uh, a mixed-race family. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, when when I'm a very good friend of mine, um, she's white. Her husband, a darling man, is black. They've got a couple of mixed race kids. Well, what do we call them? We call them Americans. That's what mm-hmm. we should call them. And we should not we should not be putting labels on each other because of how we look. Because you and I, other than the obviously the fact that you're much prettier than I am, uh, but but we're the same. I think that I like I can agree with that along the lines of like, should we stay tuned in tune with our culture? Yes. But should we be differentiating between people based off of that? No, I have no idea why it has to be on an application. Why does it matter to you? Why can I not just be American and from Illinois? Why do I have to be black, non-Hispanic and from Illinois? You know, it's just. I, I like to be an American from Illinois. And if you see my face and hi, you know, hire me and you find out I'm African-American, well, so be it. We'll go from there. But I don't think that we should have things like that, those barriers. Not right now, because the country is too sensitive. We're right. too sensitive right. for it. I mean, just think about the senses, that simple question. And it was just everybody was in a frenzy. And so it's. I would like to be an African. I would like to like and be in tune and stay and uphold my culture, while also staying in everybody understanding that we all have these different cultures, but we're all Americans with different cultures. We should be celebrating our yes, yes, celebrating our differences. Like for instance, I've never had ham hocks. One of these days, oh gosh. that's why you can, where I come from, it's it's in in the northwest. We don't we have salmon, but we okay, you, know, gotcha. and, you know and uh, uh, collard greens and and things like I've never had a real southern meal like mm-hmm. like you probably grew up with every day of your life every day, every day. And, wow. and and so we all should celebrate our differences and enjoy. The, what and because that's what makes us unique. Mm-hmm. That's yes. what makes us individuals. Mm-hmm. And and you doing what you're doing, uh, and stuff is just awesome. So let's let's talk about you some more. Okay. You've written a book or you're writing a book, one of the two. Okay. Well, I have written a book. Uh, I have two: the Black Dialect and the Black Dialect Second Second Edition. And my third book will be coming out this June, uh, which is the Journal of African American Thoughts. A story untold. Very, very nice. Well, let's talk about uh, the first book. Okay, the Black Dialect. Yeah. What's that well, about? Well, uh, well, cool. When I was growing up, simply, um, I got this thing where everybody would say, "Like you talk white." I hated it. <laughs> hated it because, and I would get so upset by it that I would go to my grandma. I'd be like. Grandma, I like they keep telling me I talk white. She's like, Well, you tell those kids you can't talk a color. I was like, You sure can't. Like, but why do we all talk? Like, you know, why does why does it everybody feel like we talk so different? You know, and it wasn't that uh, we just came from a house where we talk pretty proper. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that was what it was. But it was also like, you know, I could speak, you know, in a black dialect, Ebonics as well. That was a part of our language. But I don't feel like it was appreciated. It's not appreciated. It's not appreciated like it is another language, like um, you would speak pidgin or something like that. You speak Creole, like it's not appreciated. A part of black culture that another language is Ebonics, African-American phonics, you know? And so I wanted to write a book that contributed to that language, even during this time period 
of just kind of taking back some of that dialect. And at first I was scared because it was like, oh, it looks so chopped and screwed. And if they read this, you know, they're gonna think like, where's she from? Like the, the like the thirties, you know. You know? <laughs> and but it was just like, I'm I'm okay because I want us to learn and not be afraid of how we speak, not to be ashamed of, you know, who we are and, and our tones and how we talk about things and laugh at things and want people to understand and question, like ask a good question about black culture and get familiar with it. That's what I want people to digest with that book. I talk about soul food in that book, you know, uh, just, you know, I talk about all of the, a lot of the issues, the crack cocaine epidemic that affected our communities. Um, I mean, uh, mass incarceration. I talk about that. I talk about the light skin versus dark skin uh, issues that we have in the black community. I mean, just. Would you. Would you- and pardon me, but would you please explain that to me? I don't get yeah, it. Yeah, I sure would. Um, so I grew up in a you know black community. Here I go again, black community. And uh, but we know that during the times of slavery, that there was uh, there were slaves, the field Negro, and there was the house Negro. And many times the house Negro, um, some the female, she would tend to be lighter. In some cases, specifically because she would be being raped by the master. And so because of situations like that, she had the lighter tone. She was more appreciated. So she was considered uh, a prettier woman. She was more privileged. She had a little bit more access. Still a slave. Still a slave. However, that skin tone changed the dynamics. So later on, you see um, well, society adapt to this idea of... um, hiring women, but they, it was the paper bag. You had to be lighter than a paper bag. And so that would, would depict if you would get certain jobs or, or be able to do certain things. And so it created a lot of tension within the black community, because if you were considered dark skin or, or you were darker skin, uh, it was kind of shunned in some ways. But I really appreciate the direction in which we've started to, to push towards in society, which is going to, to teach our younger generation now to learn to appreciate just black skin color, black skin tone. The other thing that comes with lighter skin a lot of times if you're coming from a mixed race would be that your hair is also softer and more relaxed than it is the uh, the darker skin sometime. And that just that just depends. Um, but it was those differences because what was said during that time, no matter how my grandmother is your color. (laughs) um, And I believe she's, she's mixed a lot more with native American, but she couldn't be born in an African American hospital because one drop of blood, one drop of black meant that 36 seconds of black meant that you weren't able to be born here. And so that's still, we were still considered black. But there was this separation between light skin and dark skin, and it's 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 daunting. It's 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 really not. I don't like to talk about that either. But we have to talk about it. you know a lot of these things are uncomfortable, but we have to be able to bring them to the light and just just have that conversation. Well, you know, because you're right. What I'm what I'm finding is that is that there are a lot what I call the the, the new American family. Mm-hmm. And they're a mixed race family, mm-hmm. and and. The kids 
that are being produced in these come you you might have a a brother and a sister that might be completely different as far as the shade of 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 their complexion oh, yes. mm -hmm. and, and stuff but they're still brother and sister mm -hmm. nothing nothing has changed that mm -hmm. and and that we as a society need to understand that it's none of that matters right we, we need that and it's and it's so i'm so glad you're doing the work that you're doing to because i'm sitting here talking with you and i'm going good god 180 years ago your ancestors were slaves mm -hmm. and if my family lived here they didn't they lived in in at least i think they lived elsewhere but we would have been slave owners and it's like i can't i can't even get my head around that about a, a one human being owning another human being mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't make sense to me because we weren't considered that and i think that that's how they wrap their minds around it because we weren't considered human beings and the only time we were considered human beings is when the south needed representation and so you know in that point you know we started to develop somewhat of, of citizenship you know gain rights to citizenship in america by becoming those now human beings but you know what they did which is just coming to light more so and more so is that that uh in 1863 uh, abraham lincoln declared the uh, uh the um slaves free emancipation proclamation mm -hmm. but after the world after the civil war was over and he was killed and andrew johnson became uh, he he was a certified bigot, and so everything that was happening in the South was designed to keep the black people working mm -hmm. and down. Nothing. Oh couldn't. my goodness! Are you trying to go into my next book? Are you just trying to tell all? Because <laughs> I talk about that. It's it's what happened after Lincoln was killed was that they were free, but there was vagrancy that happened. When the African Americans started moving the great through the Great Migration, many of them found um, that they weren't able to get jobs because they weren't able to read. And then they created these vagrancy laws that pretty much stated, well, if you don't have a job and you don't own property, you have to go back and pretty much go back and work as a sharecropper to earn money or to relieve debt, you know, just all of these different like excuses and lies to get them back working in the South. And whenever they did work in the North, places like East St. Louis, where I was from, they still experienced racism there in high amounts. And East St. Louis would experience one of the bloodiest riots, the race riot of 1917. No, that, that Tell me more about that one. Wow. So I'll even say my great grandmother was born on the day of the race riot in East St. Louis. Um, it, July 2nd of 2000. Oh, goodness. Not July 2000. Uh, but <laughs> July 2nd of 1917. And what's stated is that, of course, during the Great Migration, East St. Louis was said to have been one of those places. It's like the suburb outside of St. Louis at that time. And so because of this, you had a lot of people that were just booming there and flocking towards the area because they had factory jobs. It was right near the railroad. The railroads actually ran through East St. Louis. It's a train station in St. Louis. And so you can imagine the industry during the, the you know, the early 19, uh, the early 20th century. And so um, it was said that there was a lot of tension because of that. 
that when they came, the African-Americans were willing to work for lower wages at the time, you know, just because they probably didn't know, you know, not a whole lot, just saying like, hey, they got jobs there. I want to get my family, you know, provide for my family. There's opportunity in the North. And so a gentleman, um, you know, pretty much tried to, they were talking in the town about it. Uh, a gentleman in an unmarked car, apparently, or uh, I don't know how many individuals were in the car, but had shot at some of the black homes in the neighborhood. Well, this kind of got the black, uh, you know, the black people in the neighborhood at that time alarmed. And so they were on guard as well, trying to see like, you know, who that was in their neighborhood. And when they found out kind of the gist of what was going on, they saw uh, a car come by. They shot at the car and they killed two individuals, but they happened to be police officers and unmarked cars. So, of course, this really set off the white community at that time. And what would really started um, was that uh, there were women. I mean, it was just it was brutal. There were women that were scout. There were children that were literally like just just thrown off into fires uh, in the fields. It was horrific. There's the Mississippi River that separates East St. Louis from St. Louis. And what happened was that many of the people in East St. Louis were actually trying to move over by swimming across the river or going across the bridge at the time. But the bridge was shut off intentionally to keep the African-Americans over there where many of them would still suffer in their burning homes. Um, the National Guard was sent there, but they were said to have contributed to it at that time. And they stated that only about 100 uh, people died. But they kind of know that there's a lot more than that, just because a lot of the people probably weren't documented at the time because of the migration and many of them moving there. And so, but it's well to believe way over higher, like a higher number than 100. You see, and that's one of those events that that are not taught in the history books. Mm -hmm. If if you were to go to a history book in at down the street at the, one of the high schools, and you were to try and look that up, you probably wouldn't find it, mm -hmm. or it'd be a footnote. Yeah, you, you know, and that that's just that's just wrong. Mm -hmm. that's that's and we have so many how do you we have so many issues mm -hmm. you have your plate is so full of ham hocks i can't believe so so what are you going to do how how are you working to change all that you're writing books uh you're speaking out i think that's great i i hope that you're getting that you're being received as you're offering it in a very positive, loving way, and you're not receiving, because I hear, I don't necessarily see it, but I hear about death threats or people sending you, uh, sending emails and, and Facebook stuff. You're not getting any of that, I hope. Well, you know, I keep a positive tone, and I think that the people that know me know that, so I don't get things like that. I get more questions. Uh, the way that I talk to people, the way that I, I try to come at people is a way of understanding, and so usually people feel more comfortable to talk to me about a lot of, I get a lot of emails about a lot of other uh, like issues that people might have um, that sometimes are traumatizing, you know, that they might be going through but nothing to the severity of things like that. And I thank God for that. I don't live in, you know, uh, I do live in a time like that, but I don't experience things like that. And I'm grateful for that. But, um, yeah. In doing the research, 
done and, and being the person that you are, how do we fix it? I want to fix it. I want to fix it today. I don't want to see a George Floyd ever happen again. I don't want to see somebody that is in their bedroom, in their nighty, sleeping, and being shot by a policeman. I don't want to see that ever, ever again. How do we stop it? I'll give you an example. I always say it doesn't matter who's your president. It doesn't matter what your government looks like. It should never stop you from picking up the trash in somebody else's yard. I think a lot of times we wait on other people to solve our issues when we can solve our issues. It's just a matter of reaching out like you and I have. And so um, I think that when we look at places like Georgia right now, that they're having some issues as far as legislation is concerned with voting. And it's like, I get that. I do. That doesn't stop you from finding a way to get people out there to vote. And so even something we are working on for the future, but even me saying this, I'm hoping that somebody else somewhere will grab the idea that you can stop by people's houses. You can prepare people to get ready to vote. The initiative is up to you. If you wanna go knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, are you ready for this election? Are you ready for this local election? It doesn't matter who you want in office. It's a matter of you reaching out on your own, you picking up your own two legs, walking on your own two feet and saying, if no one else will, I will. And that's what sets the example, because then people get curious and they want to know, well, why are you? What's wrong with her? And they want to find out why. And it's those conversations that, okay, well, I'll do it too. Once you start talking. And that's how we build relationships. And you will not touch everybody. You're going to have a lot of people that will, will pretend like they're going to show up, will say that they're listening, and they won't. But it has to be something inside of you that you feel and understand that even if the world says, I'm going to wait for the government to do it. I'm going to wait for my local official to do it. Will you keep on waiting? <laughs> That's called apathy. Yep, mm -hmm. that's called apathy. And and I was real pleased to see that at the end, which is why George is doing what they're doing now, is because this last election they got she lacked um, because of the numbers of people that said enough. We've had enough. We're going to go vote. Uh, and so they're trying to figure out ways to keep people from voting, principally people of color. Um so that they can maintain what they've had for the last 250 years. But that's got to change. And people have to change. We can't continue to do this. We can't continue to hurt each other. We just can't. And I, I really am, am proud of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. I don't know how to, you know, don't have to say it any other way. Not that I need to be proud of you because you should, you're proud of yourself. And by the way, do you have a little boy? I do. I have an amazing son who is eight years old and he's just as, almost as tall as I am now. I'm five, seven. He's about four foot. He's about four, eight. How, how, how do the conversations at home? Uh, let me preface this. I, again, I have a good friend of mine that, uh, she worked with me at a radio station 20 years ago and, uh, she's a, she's a beautiful white lady. And her sons are both uh, would be considered African-American. Uh, 
uh, by their by their appearance. They have darker skin. And she tells me that two things. Number one, she is made sure that she's on automatic dial. And if my the, either of those sons are stopped by the police, that they are required to talk to her or to call her immediately so that she can she can get in the car and go to wherever they are because the fear of is so intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is. It's, in, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's right. Because she has to. And then she has to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, with both of her boys that says, all right, if you get pulled over, you put your hands on the steering wheel, you keep your eyes straight, you don't look at anybody in the eye, you keep your hands on the steering wheel, and you comply. You do exactly what they want you to do, and you just keep your mouth shut. And it, they have to be coached. Yeah. Which is something that, which is not something that I, I had, as a matter of fact, one of my podcasts, I had five young african-american kids they're 20 early 20s late teens early 20s and we were talking about i said you know about five years ago i got pulled over by a motorcycle cop he accused me of speeding i didn't think i was speeding so i got out of the car and started walking towards the cop he they gave me the same expression you just did the raise of the eyebrow and you didn't do that did you because that's if you if i was an african-american man in the same exact situation Mm -hmm. and i got out of the car and started walking towards him saying i wasn't speeding Mm -hmm. he might shoot me yeah i don't want to live in a country like that i want to live in a country where we can all take care of each other but that's where people that's where all people have to I remember the, you know, I I read about the Black Panthers and one thing that they did that was so amazing to me because they're going to get a bad rap because of how it was done. But when you know the truth about who the Black Panthers were and what they represented, you understand that they were for the community. And when somebody was getting pulled over in a car, they stood back and they watched to make sure that it was done lawfully. And until I feel like, listen, we got to make sure it's being done lawfully. Because I don't, I should not be afraid. My, I have a fiance that, you know, sometimes he has to go to the gas station or sometimes he might have to take a drive that's 30, that's 30 minutes or so away. And because the specific area that we're in, I'm a lot more cautious and I'm like, okay, well just let me make sure you, you get there. Okay. And like, you know, if there's too many cops on the highway, I'm like, you know, like, oh, okay, well, stay on the phone with me until, like, you know, you get where you're supposed to be going. And I realized that, no, white people really don't have to have these conversations. And nobody had that conversation with me either because I grew up in an all-Black community. So I was cool with the police officers that we had. I didn't have those interactions. And so when I started getting out into the world and realizing, like, wait, what? This is what? So it's, it's, it's shock. Because I know that they don't have to be that way. And it's literally the presence of who we are and not understanding our culture and the implicit bias that plays these significant variables and how these officers interact with us. And I say it, I say it like this. When we if, unless you understand that community, unless you understand the culture of that community, it's not always beneficial to police that community because what someone might do 
that is normal. We have people that loiter all the time. We have a lot of, you know, a lot of people that, that are you have drug use and they loiter. I put change in their cups. When I see them, I ask them if they want something to eat because that's our community. These are our people. But to someone else that might come in, they might say, well, they're loitering. You're not supposed to be on the street. You got to go to jail. You get a ticket. And it's like, no, they, that's, that's just Angie. You know, like she, that's, she's always right there on the, you know, she's not bothering anybody. She's just, you know, she's drunk, you know? And, and so, but it's just like, and I think about it even on the other end, because sometimes we have to put it in the perspective of another country. I don't presume that a, a white person would be able to go into an Asian community, you know, or like, you know, or Asian country and just try to police it. You don't know anything about it. What are you going to do? Right. What are you going to say? You know what I'm saying? You can't go to Russia and say, I want to police Russia. You know what I'm saying? Even if it's white to white, you know, or European to white, you can't do it because you're not familiar with they might do. They might wave guns every Tuesday you know, and have to put them back in a bag somewhere and you might shoot everybody on the block because you're not familiar. And it's just like, that's what's happening. And the fact that they're not, they're afraid. I think that a lot of the cops have a lot of fear when they come into neighborhoods that they're already unfamiliar with. I couldn't imagine a white person that grew up in the suburbs all their lives and they were told that this community is bad. These people are terrible and they'll rob you and they'll shoot you and they kill each other. And they go in there and they pull over a black man who's in a car for says he's speeding. And that black man gets out the car and says that I'm not speed. I can't imagine what's going to happen. I was talking to them. They were like, you're crazy, man. That's craziness. And, but it, it makes me sad that I live in a country where policing isn't uniform you can't expect to get the same treatment in la that you can in in washington dc or new york or seattle and it's all different mm-hmm. and uh and it's based upon the culture of that particular area and 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 also just some people are hate division and fear have infected this country to a degree that i could not have believed yeah. was possible there are people that are there are white people that are scared that their their whiteness is not going to be as powerful as it used to be because there are more people of color that are growing up in this country than there are white people so there are white people that are scared to death that they that they're you know what i mean that mm-hmm. there's more people of color which i don't understand what the problem is i, I because we're all people and we're all God's children. You're a Christian. You work. You work very hard at at your faith. You work very hard at helping people understand. And I I applaud you for that. And I I I I, I hope you're a very very young person because you need to be around for a very very long time. Well, if thirty is the new thirty, I'm still young. <laughs> no, no, you got you got you got eighty years, kid. Uh, that the, the, you're going to be here and, and we need more people like you. Do you find that when you're talking to people, it doesn't matter their color, but maybe geographically or whatever, that you're getting a lot of people that are, they're saying you're right and that we need to change how we're, we're doing stuff. I do. And if I could just all get you guys together in one room, we'd be <laughs> like, <laughs> you know. 
I'm hoping that that room won't there. It won't be a room big enough for people that are interested in helping each other. I appreciate all the feedback I that I've gotten. Um, we work hard to just, you know, make sure that we volunteer and that's how we make our connections is through volunteering. Like what, what better way, you know, can I reach out to somebody than helping them, you know, work on a project, you know, or cleaning up their community, what better way? And so I utilize that opportunity to get to know others. And that way we help find funding for individuals. We find individuals in different job skills that when somebody has a question, through you know our program, they'll ask me like, "Hey, how do I start an LLC? Can you give me some information?" Or, "Hey, I'm not familiar, you know, with a mortgage or you know things like that. Basic tools that you know a lot of people just know, and I specifically white people just know that a lot of minority communities that we're not privy to. And I, you know, I had I'm I feel fortunate that I had people in my life that kind of was familiar with a lot of a lot more stuff and they that had gone to college and had experience but for some of the people that had not had that benefit um they have questions how do you buy a home you know uh should i buy this car at this car place should i continue to work at this job that's not giving me these benefits you know all of these things that a lot of people think are everyday decisions that they can just make they don't a lot of people from my communities, they don't know. When you get a summons in the mail, you show up in 30 days. They don't because it's, it's automatically there's, there's a tension between the courthouse, the judiciary system, the whole system and the people that they are requesting to come to court. And so when we think about that, it's just these things, even an African-American person sitting in the when you have a corporation or organization that sits in the only room or the only person in that room that's African-American, like we have to wake up and, and see these things that they're right in front of us that are affecting us every day and point it out. I feel like it's no way than point it out. But hey, why'd you do that? Ask Kiara's opinion or ask this person, like try to develop inclusiveness on your own, like push for that. But I think so many people are afraid and it's like, don't be. So hopefully the room does does get bigger. Hopefully it's a worldwide change. But I think, like you said, Kevin, like people like you and I, like we're gonna do great because I think our hearts are in the right place, and that's where it starts. It. How do we support you? You can support me by going on to my website at wespeakfoundation.org. You can also go on YouTube and just go back and listen to our suicide prevention tour videos from all the other guest interviews that we do as well. To so just, we do that to hopefully promote the idea of mental health issues and getting support for those issues to prevent suicide. That's, we wanna advocate for that. And uh, you can also reach me on Facebook and Instagram at under We Speak Foundation or just Google Kiara Johnson and you will find a host of information that you can tune into um, and just get privy to all the great things that we're doing. You can donate on our website as well and become a contributing member. And there are a lot of perks that come with that, uh, including, you know, get exclusive invites to our really awesome volunteer projects. <laughs> um, and so things like that. Um, those are great ways to support and also helping with uh, whenever we develop projects uh you know in different places 
we're always looking for people to reach out and say, hey, I want to be a part of that. How can I help? When's the date? That's what I'm looking for. Will you come back? Yes, of course. I might just be in Seattle. I would love it for you to come here. That would that would be awesome. I want this program to follow you and to see where you go. And when you're on CNN and uh, MSNBC and those guys, and you're uh, the expert that's talking about some of these issues, I I, I want to see you do that. I think you'd be, you, you're awesome. Well, Kevin, I thank you because you're absolutely amazing. And I appreciate you being the person that you are having the courage to just even talk about these issues and just ask those questions because you are the example to others that this is what we, this is all it takes is a conversation as simple as this, less than an hour and a half, less than an hour for you to sit there and just talk about the things that we're dealing with. And, and unless you're able to walk in somebody else's shoes, you just generally don't have any idea what it's like for them living day to day. I mean, you nobody would have suspected that your mom and dad did what they did uh, uh, and you have turned out so beautifully with your heart of gold and what you're doing. It's just and it's it's it's, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. You're an amazing young woman. Thank you. And I really I really appreciate you coming on. So tell us again, how can somebody get a hold of you? How do they help you? All right. So that's once again, you can go on my website. That's www.wespeakfoundation.org. You can reach out to me on my Facebook. Same thing. We Speak Foundation, as well as Instagram. If you're looking for any of my books, The Black Dialect, first or second edition, you can find that on Instagram, uh, as well as Amazon or Barnes and & Noble. and Last but simply not least, in June, don't forget to look out for my newest book that will be coming out, The Journal of African-American Thoughts, A Story Untold, or An Untold Story. Can I? I want to book you for June so that you can come back and we can talk about the third book. Will you do for that? Sure. Yes, of course. That would, that would be awesome. We've been talking with uh, Kiera Johnston. She is a remarkable human being. I hope that... Um, I, I really hope that if you have lived your life a bit sheltered, haven't been in different communities and been around different people, I hope that you'll take it into, into your heart to go search people out, um, that live differently than you do, and recognize that we're still all one. Right. We're all God's children, and we're mm -hmm. all together, and we need to learn to act that way. And to right. and you know, fifteen million children going to, to bed hungry in this country. I can't believe I live here. Mm -hmm. When that when that happens, and that that is a statistic, and that's that is a shameful one. So I'm working, and that's why I want to have people like you on because you're you're just so you're so dynamic, and and you can you you're young, you can make the change. I'm I can support you. That's what I get to do. Well, I, I appreciate it, Kevin. It's, it's people like you that are going to help get the word out. And I appreciate that 100%. And I will not ever forget your help and support. So hang on here. I got to close the program. And then I want to say one thing and maybe talk about June. So hold on. Okay.
Hey, and thanks for listening to this episode all the way to the end. Hey, pretty cool. Hey, don't forget to follow us so you can receive regular updates and new posts. And remember, take care of each other because each other's all we've got. See you next time on My Independence Report.